You're listening to the So What Podcast. And the, and the tricky thing about Gnosticism is, is Gnosticism has all of the lyrics of Christianity with none of the melodies. To a Gnostic in early Christianity, they sound a lot like us, right? So they, they're going to use the same language, but have very different definitions. And so it's important, again, in this creed that they're, that they're using this language very particularly to, to, again, reject the narrative of the day of Gnosticism, to say, we believe that creation is inherently good because our God, the Father, has made it. and He's made all of it. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Miguel Echevarria, and Brad Mills. On this episode, we're thrilled to be speaking with Dr. J.T. English. Dr. English is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he received a Ph.D. in systematic theology. He is currently serving as pastor of training at the Village Church. Today, Dr. English joins myself, Dave, and Miguel to discuss the first line of the Apostles' Creed, which is this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. During our conversation, we explore the intention behind this line by the earliest Christians, especially considering their theological contention with Gnosticism. Dr. English also discusses what it means that God the Father is maker while also creating space for the creative roles of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Finally, we discuss why this line matters for our personal lives today. But before heading over to the discussion, I'd just like to thank you again for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more about the show and its contributors at sowatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at sowatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowat underscore podcast. Well, let's head over to our interview with Dr. English. Dr. English, thank you very much for being on So What Podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Really glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, uh, today you're on with myself, Kyle Bashirs, and we have uh, Dave Kakish. Hey, JT. Hey, Dave. And we also have Miguel Echeverria. Hey, JT. Miguel, good to see you, man. Or good to hear you. Uh, so, Dr. English, you are a pastor at the Village Church in Texas. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We're here just north of the—we have uh, several campuses— uh, the campus I'm at is just in North Dallas. We call it Flower Mound. And, and I, I hear that you guys are going through a, a sermon series right now on the Apostles' Creed. We are, yeah. Right now, currently, we just uh, wrapped up what we're kind of calling the fourth article, talking about uh, the, the conception and the virgin birth of Christ. So we're a little bit of the ways into it right now. It's going really well. So, yeah, so that, I guess that was going to be my first question. Uh, how, how is it going for you overall? Um, has it been helpful uh, for you personally and for the for the folks that you serve there uh, at Village Church? It has been, you know, so 
uh, we're a we're a Southern Baptist church, uh, you know, located in Dallas, Texas. So I think some of the first questions that most people had for us, like, why in the world are you doing a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed? Our first line in the doctrinal statement is biblical authority. Why would you? Why in the world would you be going through something on the Apostles' Creed? And so I think there's a lot of answers to that. And uh, the first is is to show that all Christians are creedal people, whether we realize it or not. So that's something we've been kind of walking through slowly in some of our home group arenas and through the pulpit itself, is showing people uh, that we are we are all confessional, just as kind of a matter of which confession uh, that we're confessing. And so showing people that the, the Apostles' Creed is one of the most dated and used and helpful creeds for uh, helping Christians know what we believe and know what the Bible teaches. So one of the analogies that we've used from the pulpit about why the Apostles' Creed is is to show that it doesn't have any intrinsic authority in itself, uh, but it does point us to the authority of Scripture. It's just it's just teaching us Scripture. So the analogy our senior pastor Matt has used is it's the is it's the sunlight bouncing off the moon. You know the moon doesn't have light in itself, but it does show us light and does help provide light on on certain things. So it's been helpful for us. Uh, people have actually been responding really well to it. Um, We've never done a sermon series on a, on a creed before or on a confession, so it's unique in the life of our church. So we're only four weeks in, but so far it's been great. That's good. That's a helpful analogy too. Uh, I really like that analogy. Light, light bouncing off the moon. Yeah, we, we talked about in an episode with Dr. Allison was that it has presumptive authority based on what it's you know founded on, which is obviously scripture. And then we talked about that in our last episode with Dr. Haken, sola scriptura. And and so I do really appreciate the analogy as yeah. well. Yeah, that's great. So. First line. That's that's where we're at today. Um, what we wanted to discuss is is basically the, just the first line of the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is this from the Ecumenical Version: "I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth." So, since you guys have have gone through that, um, how did you teach it? Uh, what were the things that you learned about it? Learned from it? And um, how, what were your thoughts on that first line? Yeah, maybe I'll kind of try to break it up into chunks and we can chat about each portion of it. But before you go anywhere, I think you have to deal with that very first word or the words in the English translation, I believe in. Uh, and, you know, this is the word credo in Latin, just the confession that I believe I'm, I'm affirming something. And it's important, I think, to point out uh, in the original context of, of when this is being written and how it's used in the early church is that this is kind of a, you know, uh, stake in the ground language. Uh, this isn't just a matter of, you know, kind of signing off on a doctrinal statement and saying, yeah, I kind of half-heartedly believe these things. It's it's identifying at the deepest possible level with the content that's about to follow. Uh, and so, in some sense, you think of the early church and their confession of the Apostles' Creed, I think you have to, in one sense, say it is the most radical and subversive thing for any of them to do, to utter the words credo, or I believe. Uh, because in some sense, they are rebelling against the current narratives uh, of their culture, whether that be the Roman government and, uh, and a Caesar or, or some other form of authority in their lives. They're, they're rejecting and rebelling against the cultural authorities there in their life. So at, at one moment, it's this moment of rejection and rebellion and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting these other popular narratives of the world, while at the same moment, it's the, it's the moment of of, uh, of allegiance, of saying, I'm affirming at the deepest possible level the things that are here that are about to be true in the world. So we try to show our people here at the village that when you utter the words, I believe, for the creed, 
this isn't just a matter of kind of rote repetition and memory, but it's actually identifying with the true story of the world that God has created. He has redeemed and saved through his son and is applying that work by the Holy Spirit. And so when we're saying the creed, we're actually identifying at the deepest possible level all of our personal ideas and beliefs that are true about the world with the creed. That's good. Yeah, that is good. I like that. We haven't even got to God the Father. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I th- just to think most basically why we would even do this creed, it was to show um, whether you believe it or not, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, you are creedal. It's just a matter of what creed you're believing in. And so the early church realized that. So they wanted to make sure that what they were saying is true about this people of God uh, was true about all of us. We were all affirming that this is the true story of the world, that there's none of us that are living outside of this story. It's helpful. As we talked about in our previous episode with Dr. Haken, uh, one of the early contenders to basic orthodoxy was proto-Gnosticism. You see that in First John and all the rest. And then it gave birth to full-blown Gnosticism in the adolescence of the church. And uh, one of the fundamental, fundamental tenets of uh, Gnosticism is this understanding of creation is resulting from the fall of Sophia, which is wisdom, and the by- byproduct of which kind of led to a bifurcation of the spirit world and the world of matter, the former being good and the latter being evil. And the thing that I appreciate about it is from the beginning, the very first words is a belief, a faith in, and then as a cataphatic ex- expression of what we believe in and what we believe in is God the Father Almighty who is the maker of heaven and earth. So they're dispelling false teaching and giving rightful attribution to God the Father Almighty who is the maker of heaven and earth. Yeah, I think that, I think that's, I mean, undoubtedly that's exactly right. So not only are we dispelling uh, popular narratives and rejecting narratives of our day when we confess the creed, but that's exactly what they were doing then, right? They're, and, the, and the tricky thing about Gnosticism is is Gnosticism has all of the lyrics of Christianity with none of the melodies. So if you're That's talking good. to yeah. a Gnostic in early Christianity, they sound a lot like us, mm-hmm. uh, right? So they, they're going to use the same language but have very different definitions. And so it's important, again, in this creed that they're, that they're using this language very particularly to, to, again, reject the narrative of the day of Gnosticism to say we believe that creation is inherently good because our God, uh, the Father, has made it. and He's made all of it. That's a good point, JT. I have a question when it comes to that, that I hope we can all chime in on. So maker of heaven and earth, okay, the creation's good, but is all the creation good? Is, it ju- is that just the, the non-human creation, or does that involve the human creation as well? It doesn't seem too specific here. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'm not sure this is a hill I would die on, but I would say all of creation. I mean, I think there's certainly things, uh, when left in the hands of humanity, we will, we will create things for the purpose of destruction, for the purpose of evil and wickedness and our own uh, desires. But I think what the, uh, what the creed is trying to affirm is that you and I have never actually created. Mm-hmm. We've only taken things that are already in existence, that, already, that are, have already been made by our creator, and turned them up upon themselves for the sake of our own you know, benefit and profit which results in usually wickedness and evilness. So uh, when, I th- when I think about creation, just uh, kind of the broad category of creation, I, th- I, think, I think of God's goodness to create. Uh, and, and I don't, I mean, so matter uh, in the Christian worldview isn't an evil thing. Um, often in the hands of wicked, evil sinners, it, it almost always is. 
Uh, but creation in itself is good. You know, including our bodies, right? Because often we say, you know, we want to die and, and leave these horrible bodies and spend forever with God in heaven somewhere in some eternal bliss. So you'll say, you're saying because God created heaven and earth, he'll, he'll redeem it, right? Including he'll redeem humans. all of it. The point you're making right now is again reaffirmed later in the creed when it says, I believe in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? So that's a physical resurrection of our bodies. Uh, just like God creates Adam and Eve out of the dust and breathes life into them, so too again will happen at the resurrection of the dead that you know, our eternal glory is not in some ethereal state uh, on harps with angels on clouds, it, existing as kind of spirit and soul beings. Again, that's kind of more of the Gnostic view of eternality. Yeah. But that the Christian worldview affirms it from Revelation 21 and 22 that, that heaven will actually come and meet earth uh, in a physical reality, a physical uh, eternal state awaits us in the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, and I think later interpretation of this creed, for example, in the uh, African variant to the Apostles' Creed, which we can take from Augustine's sermon on the rendition of the creed, it says, we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of all things, right, both human and non-human. Uh, I think they're testifying to the infinite goodness of all things God has created, and he will redeem all things, both human and non-human. Sure, and, and, and using your analogy uh, that, that you all utilize at your church, I mean, if the creed is the moon, then the sun is scripture, and, and what is the scripture likely based on? Well, a whole lot of things, but one thing in at the very least is Colossians 1.16. For, I was by, just thinking that too. for yeah. by him who is Christ, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he's the medium and purpose of he all things. It. Yeah, it says he'll reconcile all things mm. to himself. You hit on something um, I th- I thought was interesting. You said that uh, God didn't create things out of pre-existing matter. Uh, we're, we're the ones that have to do that. We can't create things uh, completely out of nothing. Now, as I'm reading the Apostles' Creed, though, uh, it, it's not exactly implicit that creation ex nihilo, the God created uh, things out of nothing. Later, the Nicene Creed uh, clarified, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And so I, th- I think you're reading like Cappadocian fathers as well. They're insisting on it uh, that, that God created out of nothing. Do you think that's what um, folks had in mind back at that time? I mean, where did the idea of uh, creation ex nihilo come from? And do you think we can apply it here on this first line of the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, when I think about creation ex nihilo, to be, to be frank, I don't know where that term originated in terms of this is the first Christian to be thinking about it, but I do find it in the biblical text. I mean, I think this is the way the biblical text is reading, so if we are uh, wanting to affirm that the creed is just the right reading of the text, then I think we would want to affirm that the creed is certainly affirming this, perhaps in a, in a premature or an early state, that's, I think that's fine. I think a lot of it also goes to our dating the Apostles' Creed, which I'm sure you guys talked about with Dr. Haken and Dr. Allison maybe a little bit. Uh, but but the, the idea of creation ex nihilo is something that's affirmed by Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Athanasius, Chrysostom, Augustine. I mean, it's it's something that's universally affirmed, or not universally, that's an overstatement, but affirmed by the theologians that are, that are kind of birthing this apostolic tradition. When we think of Irenaeus and his understanding of apostolic succession, and we apply that here to the Apostles' Creed, I think... We want to say that the earliest church is understanding that God is the creator out of nothing, out of nothing. He just speaks, and existence and matter comes into in, into being. And um, 
I, I have no problem at all reading that in, in into the Apostles' Creed, not into the Apostles' Creed, but in the Apostles' Creed. Hmm. So I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking through the alternatives of what you'd be left with if if that wasn't the case if early Christians believed that God used pre-existing matter and what what comes to mind is then then pantheism so everything is god that's an alternative another alternative is that god actually doesn't exist that the universe is a self-creating machine and that's sort of the idea that a lot of people hold today i i think the the closest thing you would get to to maybe a tenable idea within christian theism is that there was existing material that god used but what would what do you think the implications of that would be if 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 creation out of of nothing is not true, and and that God had to use something in order to create the universe. Like, what are we left with? What are the implications of that? I mean, you're left with something that's self-existent, uh, that that can exist outside of the sovereign reign of the one true God. Uh, and if something can can exist outside of God's word and the power of His word, which we see in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, I think you begin to have a very different definition of who God is and what He does mm-hmm. and what He's even capable of. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're left with with matter or something that exists outside of God's providence, uh, which is a which is a big problem for the Christian mindset and the Christian understanding of the world. So what you're implying, Dr. English, is that matter would then share an attribute of God, mainly his aseity, his existence from self. Exactly. So he, he'd, he'd move from creator to basically a like a cosmic carpenter. I mean, he, <laughs> cultivator, a cultivator. Yeah. Yeah, rather than being the one who speaks things into existence by his word, he becomes one who just uh, who takes things that exist and maybe makes them better, fashions them to his own liking. And just in the line of apologetic thinking, we always ask, where did that come from? And where did that come from until we get to God, right? And that's when the line of questioning stops at infinitum. We can stop there because we say God is, to borrow the language of Aquinas, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. Uh, and so he is uncreated, and he is therefore creator. And talking about God as creator helps us in a, in a really helpful way to, to think about the distinction between the creator and created. There's a fundamental distinction between all that God made and who God is. Just looking at this word, almighty, pantocrator, okay, almighty, I think you did a good job of putting the creed in its Roman context. So certainly the father is greater than Caesar, or any other Roman ruler, he is more powerful than him, he's almighty. Could we also apply this to other false gods or idols uh, of the time? How would you view this? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, too. The way we've been teaching that at the village, uh, I mean, to maybe taking it out of the Roman context for a minute, but is just thinking about, and this this is kind of maybe the pastoral application of God's almightiness, uh, but asking ourselves the questions, what things appear or seem to be almighty in your world that actually aren't? Uh, perhaps that's uh, your salary, your 401k, your uh, your family history, your lineage, your legacy, whatever. There's a, there's a thousand things that all of us would, would kind of treat as almighty in our lives. But then asking ourselves the question, and when we confess the creed, again, denying those things as almighty, but saying that God, and using the term you use, he is pancreat, or he is the one who is almighty, and there's nothing else in existence in the world that shares in the almightiness of God. No, that's good. Would a, would an early Christian have viewed that viewed it that way, or would he have thought it in more of a subversive way? No, Caesar's not the, the almighty one. It's the Father. And, uh, no, I, I agree with you hard, wholeheartedly. Caesar is not almighty at all. Our Father is. And ultimately, 
I see I see the Apostles' Creed as an early Trinitarian document. Obviously, it's, it doesn't address it with the same uh, kind of clarity that Nicene Chalcedon does, but it, it certainly has uh, the Trinitarian persons there. They're not fully developed as we see it later, but we're seeing all of these persons of the Godhead are almighty. It, you know, when we make the confession in a few lines down that Jesus is Lord, you see the same kind of subversiveness happening uh, that you see when confessing that God the Father is almighty. It's helpful. In Romans 1, 19 through 20, Paul informs us that it's through creation God is making himself known in his invisible attributes, namely, first and foremost, Paul is his eternal power, and that's where we're tying God Almighty to the creator of heaven and earth. And he says it's, it's you know, clearly perceived, right? And, and ever since creation of the world and the things that God has made, he's made himself known, and so there's no claim for ignorance, right? And that's why Calvin talks about the created world as God's theater, uh, in which God is making himself known to all. He's doing these things, but without special revelation, we can't rightly interpret what God's doing. But uh, in Acts 17, Paul is speaking to pagans who believe in other gods, correct? And, mm-hmm. and when he does, we see that Paul uses the doctrine of creation, the fact that God made the world and everything in it, as the foundation of God's sovereign prerogative over the whole world and the impetus for mankind to repent and believe in him. And I think that's what you know, Kuiper's trying to capture and encapsulate the spirit of Paul when he says uh, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, and I would add even in all the spiritual dimensions uh, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine, you know. That's right. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's great. And it, so Thomas Aquinas wrote a lot on, uh, on, on this, and he's, he pointed out five benefits that you can draw from the first line, and his first benefit was this. We are led to knowledge of the divine majesty. Mm-hmm. Like I, say, I mean, if, if there's the one thing that we walk away from this out of the five, he, the most important that he thought was the almightiness, the omnipotence, the, the, the divine majesty that, that the maker has over his creation. I'd like to push this a little farther. Okay, so God's almighty... Can he do anything? What are the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that this is a a specific direct answer to your question. I mean, to answer it simply, yes, he can do anything. He is the one who will never lapse into any kind of imperfections. But when we're answering that question, we always have to have a caveat that says he only does the things that are in accordance with who he is. Right, so you have this silly kind of philosophy question, can God create a rock too big that he can't move it? Right, so that's that's not what we're saying when we're talking about God's almightiness. We're talking about God's almightiness to do things that are in accordance with who he is, who his essence is, and his divine sovereign power and will. So for, for the, just before you move on, for the undergrad philosophy majors out there, can you answer their question specifically so they can get an A on a test? Can God, can God create a rock so large he can't move? I leave those kind of questions to Miguel typically. I think they those in the New Testament classes. And, and the medieval scholastics. Y'all have fun. <laughs> hey, JT, uh, you and I have shared many a conversations about the Trinity and what it means for God to be three persons in one God, one nature. And uh, I have a question for you when we think about the Trinity and creation, right? Because in Genesis 1-1, we know that God created the heavens and the earth. But as we already mentioned, Colossians 1-16, we read that by him, mainly Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, all things were created. How do we reconcile this apparent ostensible problem? Who created the heavens and the earth? Because in the creed, we're confessing that it's God the Father. Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a great question. So 
I think there's there's kind of a few prongs that need to be answered. So when we're talking about Trinitarian, we just have a, a kind of a working definition for what we mean by Trinity. And really, when 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 the Christian confesses that God is Trinity, we're saying that there is eternally one God. Uh, we are monotheists as Trinitarians, but this God has eternally existed as three distinct persons: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of which it's important that we confess that each of which are fully God, yet there's still one God. Uh, so for those of us who who like kind of logic and linear thinking, that that definition is 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 uh, a bit a bit logically difficult. But that's what Trinitarianism is. Uh, and when we're confessing, so your example is creation that we're confessing that that the one God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created, that it is an act of each of the three persons in some sense. That there's never a person of the Trinity that acts separably from the others, right? Because there is only one divine will and only one God. So in creation, for example, we see God the Father creating through his word and by his spirit. So the way, the simple language I like to use when I think of, of Trinitarian operations is that the Father is thought of as the, as the source of all things. The Son is the mediator of all things. And the Spirit is the consummator, completer of all divine action. And that's really what we see uh, kind of, I, I think, described for us in the biblical text. So for creation, God the Father speaks things into existence through his word, which is his son, and completes those things by his Holy Spirit. And so Hebrews 1, 2, in the last days, when, he's, when the author of Hebrews is talking, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And, and this is, to your point, through whom also he created the world. Exactly. So in the doctrine you're unpacking, the teaching in which you're unpacking is the doctrine of inseparable operations. Correct. Which is the understanding that all three persons of the Trinity are one God, so three persons, one nature. Each person of the Trinity is operating or participating in all that God does at extra, outside himself and in external works, right? That's right. Okay. And we can, a helpful clarification though, and tell me if we're different on this, is to add that an act may terminate on a person of the Trinity. For instance, the Son became incarnate and not the Father of the Spirit, and the Spirit descended at the day of Pentecost. That's exactly right. No, and I would even say not only not only can they, I would say each external act does terminate on a person. Uh, so for example, um, not only the incarnation, but the Father doesn't die on the cross, uh, but the Father is acting in the Son's death. He's still acting as the one who has sent the Son. Uh, so it's important that we still have, and you're making a great point here with, with operations terminating on each person. Um, but again, even when we talk about termination, it's kind of like whenever you think of the one, you want to think of the three. Whenever you think of the three, you want to think of the one. I think the same thing's true when it comes to inseparable operations and termination of, of operations is, yes, it's the son who, who is the one who becomes incarnate, but only insofar as the father sends him and that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. So with all that said, uh, we're going to come back to the, you know, the purpose of this conversation. So what? Like, who cares about the first line of the Apostles' Creed? Uh, I'm a Christian living in the West in the 21st century. Um, in, in everyday life, I'm driving to work, I'm going to school, uh, I'm with my husband, my wife, my kids. Why does this first line matter? Yeah, uh, and that's the question I think that we're trying to answer here at the Village Church as we preach it and teach it. Uh, I mean, it matters uh, pastorally uh, because when we think of God as Father, uh, we're reminded that we are sons and daughters and that we've been adopted uh, through His Son 
into this uh, divine eternal family. So it's important that that certainly we we discuss the robust doctrine that we find in the Apostles' Creed and uh, birthed in Scripture, but we're reminded that this language of Father and Almighty and Creator uh, is important, but only insofar as it reminds us that not only is is God the Father, our Father, but He has acted as Father to bring us into His kingdom as heirs and sons and daughters of His kingdom. So even within that first line, it's sort of already pointing to, what is that, line three, when, when Christ comes? Uh, if you know the story, the, the overall narrative of, of Scripture and salvation, when you see Father, the bells that should be ringing are adoption, sonship, uh, inheritance. You, you, you were on the outside— now you are in. You are a part of that family. I like that. I, I think that's a, that's great. Yeah, I mean, biblically, the term father is used most in relationship to the father's relationship to the son, specifically in the Gospel of John, and then union of Christ. Union with Christ becomes one of the most beautiful, important doctrines for us in the church. It is it's through our union with the son that we now know God as Father. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we're going as we're going on through this, any landmines that you would warn us about, um, specifically, maybe I don't know. He descended into hell. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we're on that uh, next week here at the village. So uh, I'll uh, I'll talk to Pastor Matt and get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if if folks wanted to listen in on that, how would they do so? Yeah, it's a great question. So I mean, you can find our podcast on iTunes if you just look up the Village Church, or if you go to village, thevillagechurch.net, all of our uh, all of our sermons are there available via video or audio. Well, we've been discussing the first line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And historically, this line represents a daring challenge to the assumption that universal authority was consolidated and personified in the person of the Roman emperor. The earliest Christians rejected that norm by swearing allegiance to a higher power, the Almighty Father who is God. This line also served those earliest Christians by distinguishing Orthodox Christianity from the competing so-called Christianities, most notably Gnosticism, that denied the goodness of the physical universe as seen in God's declaration that his creation was very good. And today we can find solace in this first line as a reminder that God is not only the Father, but he is our Father, one in whose arms both sustain the heavens and embrace his children. Well, join us next time as we discuss, I believe, in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. The So What podcast is a production of the people of Mars Hill in Mobile, Alabama. For more information, visit pomh.org.